want you to turn in your Bibles this morning with me, if you would, to the book of Acts. Book of Acts, chapter 16. Book of Acts, chapter 16. Yesterday, as most of you know, we uh, participated in a parade uh, downtown in Washington which uh, started out with somewhat of a uh, baptism in the theology of some. It uh, rained quite adequately uh, as we were getting ready, and most of us were uh, fairly saturated with water. Um, Went over by a house, stood under a staircase, and just prayed and said, God, you have to have the rain stop so that we can get the flyers out that we wanted to distribute to get the Word of God out into our community and invite young people to have an opportunity to come and... uh, Hear the good news of Christ. As we were standing in line at the beginning of the, uh, of the parade, one of the ladies who was going to be involved in handing out flyers said to me something about feeling a little bit nervous about walking in the parade, not that part of it, but the part of walking up to people and giving them an invitation to a church event, meaning handing out something that had religious connotations or overtones. I thought to myself this, I said, you know, I had to admit, even starting something new like that that you haven't done for a while, you get those little, you know, twings and butterflies in your stomach as you get ready to go and to encounter people with the message of Christ. The passage of Scripture we're going to look at today is about an encounter between two men named Paul and Silas and a man that we know in the Word of God as the Philippian jailer. Okay, it is a powerful story. And what I want to do initially is this. I want to lay out the characters of the story. And there basically are three main characters in the story. The first two we know as Paul and Silas. You may wonder how they ended up in Philippi, where they ultimately end up being arrested for casting a demon out of a girl and end up in jail. And that's where this account that Roger read for us takes place. To understand how they ended up in Philippi, you have to go back to Acts 16, verses 9 and 10. The Word of God says, During the night... Paul had a vision of a man of Macedonia, which is the region where the city of Philippi was. During the night, he has this vision, a man standing and begging him, come over to Macedonia and help us. After Paul had seen the vision, we got ready to go at once to leave for Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. Okay, so... The the first phase of the story in terms of the characters involved is Paul and Silas are apostles and preachers of the gospel of Christ. They receive a vision from God by which he directs them to go into a region called Macedonia. In that region, there is a city named Philippi. When they get there, they begin to do what God had called them to do. That is to preach the gospel, verse 10, to them. So they get there and they begin to fulfill their God-given calling living in obedience to God. Okay? Then what happens? They encounter a lady named Lydia. If you look at verse uh, 13, on Sabbath, they went out to the city, to, uh, outside the city gate to the river, and they expected to find a place of prayer. That is where God-fearing Jews were spending time together praying. When they get there, in, they encounter a businesswoman named Lydia. They share the gospel with her, and at the end of the paragraph it says, and the Lord opened Lydia's heart, to receive the good news of Christ. They move on from that encounter to encounter a little girl who is following them around and somewhat 
heckling them, giving messages. And finally, they realize that this girl is demon-possessed, and Paul and Silas, in the name of Christ, give this girl freedom from demonic oppression. It's an amazing account. The result is that her handlers, the people that profited from her fortune-telling capacities, became very angry because in her freedom, they were losing revenue. Okay, that's how commerce-oriented they were in their relationship with this young girl. So she set free. Those that are angry with Paul and Silas kind of get the crowd into an uproar, and eventually the brothers Paul and Silas are brought before the magistrates of the city. Okay, and they are accused of causing a riot. Okay, that's the basic flow of the story. So there's this tumult in the city because a lady has come to Christ named Lydia and a young girl has been set free from demonic oppression. Okay, that leads Paul and Silas into a very unique setting, I believe, providentially by the hand of God. And I think the events that follow after it make that very, very clear. So, Paul and Silas are now physically brutalized, and that's where the story somewhat picks up, if you will, uh, verse 23, after they had been severely flogged, which is to be stripped of your clothing and to be beaten with rods, which would leave lacerations on your back. Because they were speaking the name of Christ, and the community did not like the consequence of the bold proclamation of the gospel of Christ. So that's how Paul and Silas end up in prison. Enter another character, verse 23. The Philippian jailer, as we know him. He's the kind of the, the guy that's the, uh, the, the, the uh, uh, what's the word in the jail? So I'm losing the word. The head guy in the prison system. All right, the warden. All right, he's the warden of the prison there. And it's, it's typically these were prison houses where the warden would live upstairs and underneath were the prison cells and the prison area. Okay? So... He enters into the picture in verse 23. After they had been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison, and the jailer, who now becomes the central character in the story, was commanded to guard them carefully. Okay? Be sure that these men do not escape and cause more problems. That's the charge that's given to this Philippian jailer. He has no idea what's about to happen to him this night. This is a glorious, troubling set of circumstances in his life. What kind of a man is he? Most of the, the wardens of prisons at that time were retired Roman soldiers. So he's a man who is, in a sense, hardened off to human pain. And, and you may capture a bit of that sense from what happens. He takes Paul and Silas, he puts them in the inner cell, okay, at the highly protected, maximum security, and in that cell, he locks their feet in stocks. And we'll know from something that occurs a little bit later in the text, he goes home and falls asleep. All right, takes two men who are beaten severely, a beating that was often lethal in its consequence. He locks them in stocks in the inner chamber, and he goes home and he goes to sleep. Paul and Silas are recovering from this experience. The Philippian jailer lays down in bed knowing that failure to keep these men secure would mean death. Once they're secure... He drifts off to sleep. I imagine Paul and Silas taking time through the early parts of the evening, 
recovering, beginning to get their senses, beginning to comprehend what has just happened to them because they were living in obedience to God. Beaten, flogged, thrown in a prison, feet in stocks, legs numb. How would you feel? What would your response to God's providence, His sovereignty in your life in those circumstances be? I want us to move through this story asking two very simple questions. One is this. What is it that drew the Philippian jailer to faith in Christ? Because as was read by uh, Roger, we know that eventually this man, at the end of this night, is a believer in Christ. Okay, so what leads this man to a sudden change of heart? He's not a likely candidate for evangelism. I doubt that Paul and Silas went into Philippi saying, you know what, we really should pray for the jailer. I doubt that that happened. This was, this was a providential set of circumstances with a hardcore, hardened-off Roman soldier who doesn't know who is in his possession. He doesn't know who's in his care. And God's going to surprise him in this night through the godly character and representation of Christ that Paul and Silas bring into this man's life. What draws him to Christ? And then, how does he evidence his newfound faith in Christ. So let's look at what drew this Philippian jailer to faith in Jesus. I'm just going to give you a couple thoughts. One is this. He had an encounter with two authentic Christians. He had an encounter with two authentic Christians. And said, Tim, where do you come up with the idea that they are authentic Christians? I think the answer, the answer to that question is found in the series of events that occurs. They, Paul and Silas, are beaten for their faith in Christ. And then they're in jail. And as they recover their senses, there is not a hint of complaint. Nothing in the story would indicate that they felt bad about what happened. Were they experiencing pain? Yes, they were brutalized. But as they come to their senses in this place, a prison place, what do they see? They see an opportunity. They see a captive audience. And what do they do? They begin, and notice how the text says it. I think it's just so beautiful. Verse 24. Upon receiving orders, they were placed into the inner cells. Verse 25. About midnight. So perhaps some hours later, since the miracle of the casting out of the demon probably occurred in the daytime with this young girl being outside. About midnight. And I just, in my mind, I just have this. They begin to recover their senses. Okay? The blinding pain begins to subside a bit and as they begin to regain their senses Paul and Silas in prison in stocks are praying and singing hymns which is songs of praise to God now, I love the next phrase and the prisoners were listening <laughs> they are thinking these are weird prisoners They're, at least this they are not normal men they're not responding like everybody else does with curses and disappointment and a desire for revenge. They are authentic Christian men and they are men that this jailer is about to encounter in a fascinating way. They are praying. What is prayer? Seeking God's providential purpose in this circumstance. Folks, do you, do you ever get disgusted with how quick you are to complain? catch yourself complaining in a circle. I do, and I'm just, God, help me. 
I am so prone to react negatively to negative circumstances. Paul and Silas are so schooled in their relationship with God that they see this circumstance as a unique, God-wrought opportunity. They follow the directive of James in James chapter 1, verse 2. Brothers, count it all joy when you encounter various kinds of trials. You know why? Because we live in a fallen world. And we here are going to encounter various kinds of struggles and difficulties along the way. God wants us to respond with joy. Because when we do, we are authentic, God-led Christians. And there is a world out there that is watching to see if people that profess faith in Christ are really different. They're wondering if Jesus really makes a lasting difference in our life. I think in this story, Paul and Silas are giving to the prisoners at least a clear evidence. They love God. They're proclaiming the sovereignty of God. They're praying to God. He let them be in this place, but they trust Him. Do you see? There's an, an encounter with authentic Christian men. Second thought that emerges is this. There is a divine intervention. God's not going to let the Philippian jailer make it through the night sleeping. Verse 26, the Word of God says, Suddenly there was such a violent earthquake that the very foundation of the prison were shaken. At once, all of the prison doors flew open and everybody's chains came loose. Okay, an earthquake so violent that it shakes the house to its very foundations. The staples that hold the chains to the wall are loosed and every prisoner free to go. That's the nature of this divine intervention. I wonder this when I read this account. Are Paul and Silas praying about how do we reach the city that God has called us to reach? How do we reach Philippi with the gospel when we're in prison? Praying for God. God, would you show us a way? Would you give us an opportunity We'll maximize the opportunity we have here with the other prisons, but would you increase our opportunity to fulfill the command and directive you gave to us back in chapter 16 and verse 10 to go and to preach the good news of Christ? And so they pray, and God responds with a supernatural encounter for this Philippian jailer, who I believe is the target of this miraculous occurrence. So, a divine intervention. God shakes his world so strongly that it awakens him out of his sleep. In verse 27, the jailer woke up, which is how we know that after he put Paul and Silas in chains and in stocks, he went home and went to sleep. The earthquake wakes him up, and I am sure that absolute sheer dread rushes over his heart as he begins to realize what has just happened. He's been given a charge by the magistrates, keep those prisoners and do not let them go. He comes rushing downstairs, finds that all of the gates of the prisons are open, that the chains have broken free from the wall. He makes an assumption. He makes an assumption that the prisoners did what every prisoner given that opportunity would do. They would run for their life. They wouldn't hang around to find out what's going on. They would leave and be self-protective. And so he does what an honorable Roman soldier in that setting would do. He prepares to take his life. The only honorable solution to such circumstances, to such shame in his mind, is to put a dagger into his own heart. And he draws his dagger and prepares to kill himself. 
Paul and Silas then cry out. Paul shouted, do not harm yourself. Verse 28. We are all here. What is that? Well, in this divine intervention, God brings into this man's life a crisis. But in this circumstance, he brings into his life men who have a degree of integrity that is substantial and unusual in their world. In a world where everybody lives for themselves, Paul and Silas are authentic Christians who are prepared for a divine intervention. And they see the hand of God at work. And this man, because of their, if you will, selflessness, encounters two men who apparently had, because of their witness, some type of a control over the rest of the men, and everybody in the prison is still there. What follows this divine intervention, this crisis that allows this man to see his need? There is, I think, this this idea, deep and searching conviction in this man's heart. You notice what verse 29 says? The jailer called for the lights and rushed in trembling. Verse 31, or uh, ver- the end of verse, uh, verse 30. Here's what he says. He went in and fell down before them. He brought them out and asked, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Now, a couple questions start to come to mind. What is the nature of the request? Is it that his circumstances are so dire and he is so terrified that he's pleading for rescue from his circumstance? Or is it a plea for salvation? The answer to the question is, initially, we don't know. Because the word that he uses to address Paul and Silas is the word, if you go back in the original language, it's the same word as Paul's going to use when he says, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. He comes in and says to them, lords, masters, what do I need to do to be saved? And Paul's response is fascinating because he says, you need to believe in the Lord and you will be saved. So it's divine intervention that leads to deep and searching conviction. A man is stunned by the presence of prisoners who could have gone free, but do not act to protect their own interest. When the opportunity came to flee, they stayed. You can ask yourself this question, why did they do that? Well, we know one thing from the story. Okay, the life of the Philippian jailer is spared because they were willing to stay in prison. His freedom, his life is rescued physically by their willingness to stay behind. You say, Tim, how do you know that? Because when he got down to the prison and thought that all the men were gone, what was he going to do? He's going to kill himself. Their presence saved his life. But it could not change his eternal destiny. Fascinating, isn't it? Their presence saves his life, but it couldn't change their eternal destiny. But an encounter with them in what they decide to proclaim to him absolutely changes this man's eternal destiny. This morning, can I just ask you this question? This is the Philippian jailer's story. This is the divine intervention, the crisis that God brings into his life to show him that he needs a Savior. This morning, can you say, Pastor Tim, I've been through a crisis like that. 
God has brought me to a place at some time in my life when I saw my need for a Savior, for a Redeemer. I saw that I was lost. And I cried out to God for help. See, God doesn't bring these circumstances into our life by mistake. They're part of His divine intervention. And what He does for the jailer, He brings him to a crisis moment where He actually considers terminating His life. He contemplates eternity. And as He does that, He cries out to these men, what must I do? This is His story. What is your story? Do you sense this call of God on your life, on your heart? How will you respond? to the good news of Christ. The last thing that happens in this set of circumstances that bring this man to faith in Christ is the clear and bold proclamation of the gospel of Christ. Look at verses 31 and 32. This is Paul and Silas's response to the question from the jailer. They replied. And don't, do you love how ready they are? My friend last, uh, last Saturday night watched his house burn looked at the pictures of it on TV, a, a horrific, amazing fire. My daughter was working at the hospital, at the Muhlenberg Hospital, last Monday, working on a patient, uh, taking pulse, whatever she was doing, and she heard my friend's voice on the TV. What I, lo- I went and watched the video, because like, what do you say? You just watched all of your physical possessions go up and spoke. What do you say? I want to tell you something. If your heart's not prepared, okay, your, your response is going to be very soft. I listened to my friend's response to the crisis. You know what he did? He said, you know what? The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. He said, you know what? He said, all of us are going to die. And if we either we're going to spend eternity separated from God in hell or with him in heaven. And that's what matters most. It was on TV and they didn't cut it short. God brought a crisis into this man's life. God brought two men into this man's life who, when they had an opportunity to proclaim Christ, they took it. Here's what's fascinating to me about that. Why are Paul and Silas in prison? Because they proclaim the name of Christ, right? And when they, in prison, have an opportunity to do the same thing that got them there, what do they do? They take it. They're not silenced by the shame. I I, I, I can't tell you how many times in my life I have had the experience of opportunity and failure in relationship to sharing Christ because I was afraid of a very temporary, minimal consequence. Paul and Silas were authentic Christians who were willing to share their faith in Christ in this God-organized, God-directed, God-ordained setting. And as they begin to share their faith in Christ, glorious things begin to happen. They say, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved and your whole whole household. Verse 32. Then they spoke to him the word of the Lord and to all the others in his house. So this man takes Paul and Silas from prison and when they get there, what does he do? He doesn't leave it just with a simple proclamation of the name of Christ. Then he declares to them all the things that Jesus Christ had done for them. It does not take long to go through the writings of the New Testament and to find out that when they're speaking about the Lord Jesus, that they're talking about the cross work of Christ. Okay, folks, listen. What people in our world need is a clear proclamation of the good news of Christ. Nothing else can change their eternal destiny. 
So when the opportunity comes and you encounter someone who God has allowed a crisis to come into their life, has begun to open their heart to the good news of Christ, take advantage of the opportunity that is God-ordained and share with them the message that can change their life in spite of the consequences that you've endured in the past and in spite of the potential future consequences. What do they share with this man and his family? Verse 30, 31, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved and your household. Wrapped up in that, I believe, is a call to faith and repentance to trust in God. It's why Paul and Silas had come to the city of Philippi. And they took advantage of the opportunity. In this clear and bold proclamation, there is also this. There is a verbal description of the cross work of Jesus Christ. Folks, listen. It's easy for us to think that our life is evangelistic. Okay, it's easy for us to think that what we need to do is is live the love of Christ. Live the life of Christ. But sometimes I think we do this. And please tell me, just, do you sense this? We sometimes overrate living a distinct life. And we think that simply living a distinct life is enough. And we don't take time to verbalize the message of Christ. I mean, I think in this account, it is very clear that Paul and Silas are living a selfless life, are demonstrating the love of Christ by staying there, preserving this man's life. That, I think, is very, very clear. But they don't stop simply with acts of love. See if this makes sense. Acts of love, loving service, shows the world that we are different. But do you understand how that can become very selfishly motivated? Okay? A loving life, a selfless life, acts of love are wonderful. And they are directed to us by Christ as a means by which we impact our world. But loving acts of service, living a good testimony before the world around me, in and of itself is not enough. It shows that we're different, but it doesn't tell people why. Okay, It is the gospel of Christ that tells people why we're different. So does it make sense that what we have to do is take it up a notch in our experience and sharing our faith with people? It's one thing to live the life in front of them. It is another thing to begin to open your mouth and risk the consequences that we fear of proclaiming faith in Christ. And I don't think any of us here are in fear of ending up in prison for proclaiming the name of Christ. Paul and Silas had a chance to go free. They refused it because of love for the jailer and because they had prayed for a divine, God-given intervention and opportunity. And when God provides that opportunity, they take maximum advantage of it. A verse that comes to mind when I think about the need for proclaiming why we are different more than just simply showing that we're different is Romans 10 and verse 17. Let me just read this passage of Scripture for you. Romans 10, 17. Paul says, Consequently, Faith comes from hearing the message. And the message is heard through the word of Christ. You see the connection? My life gives me an opportunity to share Christ. My life should say to the world around me, there is something distinct and unique about what God has done in my life. But faith, trusting Christ, comes by hearing and hearing 
the word about Christ. And that word about Christ, I think, is beautifully captured in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 3. Paul says, when we came, we declared to you that which is of first importance. That Christ died for our sins, that he was buried, and that he rose again on the third day. Paul did not simply come to Corinth. He did not simply come to Philippi and say, watch me, I'm going to live a Christian life. Watch my response to suffering. I'm going to live a Christian life. He took advantage of every opportunity to proclaim the good news of Christ. If you go to Acts chapter 20, here's what he can say. He can say to them, you know that I never shrunk back from an opportunity to proclaim the gospel of Christ to you. Folks, wouldn't it be wonderful if that became our testimony? Because the reason the Philippian jailer came to faith in Christ is because there was an authentic Christian witness in his life. When a crisis came, that witness was verbalized and changed his eternal destiny. Evidence of his conversion. You say, Tim, how do you know that this man came to faith in Christ? Look with me, if you will, at verse 34. It says, the jailer brought them into his house. And notice what it says. He set a meal before them, an act of love. I think that's an evidence of a change. He was filled with joy. Why? Well, I mean, at one level, the guy's life was spared because the prisoners that could have left didn't leave, but they stayed behind for a purpose. The reason he has this substantial joy following an earthquake that shook his heart is because through it, he came to believe in God. Folks, people come to believe in God when we're willing to share the word about Christ with them. May God help us to capture a boldness in being willing to proclaim the gospel of Christ to a world around us that desperately needs to hear. Paul and Silas, I believe in this text, prayed for opportunities, saying, God, we're sitting in prison. How do we fulfill your calling from verse 10 of chapter 16 to preach the gospel of Christ in Philippi? Well, I guess we'll do it here. That's what they conclude. And then God, boom, brings to them a divine opportunity because he knew they would take advantage of it. He answers their prayer, I think, in a very specific way. Evidence of conversion then is that there are acts of love that come from the Philippian jailer. He takes them into his house. There is a new and substantial joy in his life. But there's also something else in verse 33. And I want us just to look at this real quickly. Look at verse 33. At that hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds. Now listen, earlier when they had wounds, what did he do? He did what any hardened off Roman prison warden would do. He stuck them in maximum security, locked their feet in stocks with numbing effect and went to bed. Now that his heart's changed, what happens? He doesn't throw them back in stocks. You know what he does? He takes them home. Okay? He feeds them. And he washes the wounds on their back. At what risk politically? I have no idea. I have no idea. But his heart had been so substantially and substantively changed by the good news of Christ who had set him free from his sin, who had wiped out his fear of death, that he cannot be the same. Do you see? 
the other evidence that comes up is this in his life. The other evidence of conversion. At that hour of the night, he took them, washed them immediately. He and all of his family were baptized. Now, this becomes fascinating. Okay, so I ask two questions. What drew the jailer to faith in Christ? Well, it becomes clear. Paul and Silas's witness authentic and a God-ordained crisis. How did he evidence his new faith in Christ? Well, his life has simply changed. But he takes one more step that puts him at great risk, as we know from the New Testament time period. He is willing to participate in believers' baptism. Now, here's the question I, want to just, I just want to tease out to close this morning. Why should a believer be baptized? Why does this man participate in believer's baptism as an evidence of his newfound faith on the same night in which he comes to Christ? I think the answer is found in these three statements. Number one, because baptism is commanded by Christ for all believers and bound up in the proclamation of the gospel was an anticipation that the new believer, or believers in this case, would profess their faith in Christ in the waters of baptism. Because it was simply commanded by Christ. One of the clear evidences of conversion is that God so changes your heart that the will of God, His desire for your life, becomes your desire. And so for the Philippian jailer, he is baptized because baptism was commanded by Christ. It is, baptism is prominent in the directness of Christ to His disciples. Matthew 28, 19 and 20. He says, go into all the world and make disciples. And then what's the next word? Baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. See them come to faith in Christ. See them profess publicly faith in Christ. That is the clear command and directive of Christ in relationship to their response to conversion. It is prominent in the directives of Jesus. It is present on a regular basis. It is never stated as an optional ritual. An optional ritual. It is not tradition. It is not peripheral. It is central to the expression of believing faith. You go back through the book of Acts, Acts 2 and verse 38. They are told, they say, what shall we do, brothers, to be saved? Repent and be baptized. Confess your sin to God, be converted by faith in Him, and then express that conversion in newfound faith in Christ. Acts 2.41. Those in that setting that accepted Peter's message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day day. Now the reason we practice believer's baptism and adult baptism is because in neither of these accounts is there an indication of infants participating in baptism. In fact, if you look at the end of verse 34 of Acts 16, it says he was, he was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God. He and, what's it say? His entire family. What a glorious night. What a glorious night when the gospel of God broke through a, a tragic evening and there is deep-rooted joy that is expressed publicly in the waters of baptism. There's no record of infant baptism. Everyone in the house expressed trust and faith in the message that Paul and Silas had taught to them. That is the word about Christ. We should participate in this public expression of our faith, not only in baptism, but verbally in words, because it is commanded by Christ. This is the question that comes to my mind sometimes. Why do people avoid believers' baptism? 
Sometimes perhaps there's confusion. Sometimes I think people believe that it draws attention to themselves. It's the way some have expressed it to me. But I think it's because we misunderstand the purpose of this act of baptism. Okay? First, it's commanded by God. Therefore, we should participate in it. Secondly, baptism exalts, pictures, and proclaims the work of Christ on the cross as the only hope of sinners. Okay, so there, there can't be anything of self-promotion and self-proclamation in the waters of baptism. Because prior to baptism, what do individuals give? They give a public profession of the fact that they have seen their sin, realized that they were lost without Christ, and that only through the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ can they have the hope of eternal life. Because on the cross, He bore all of our sin. That's why we practice baptism by immersion. Why? Because it best captures, I believe it's what the words indicate, but it best captures what baptism is picturing for a world around us. The death, burial, and resurrection to new life of Christ. Okay, so baptism can't make me proud. It can't bring pride into my life because I am picturing the glorious death, burial, and resurrection of Christ as the only means of hope. I want to make a statement at this point that I hope brings clarity, okay? And it is this. The act of baptism, okay, the act of being baptized does not secure what it signifies or what it proclaims, okay? What it proclaims is the old person died and a new person has emerged and I can take no credit for that. Because in baptism, Romans 6 says what? We are united with Christ in his death burial, and resurrection, which means what? To be united to that means this. Tim Hoff died. His old life is gone. And through union with Christ, he has become a new individual. Owing totally and completely to the saving grace of God that is received by faith. Okay, the verse that comes to mind, Ephesians 2, 8, 9, which should be familiar to all of us. For by grace you are saved from your sin through faith. That is not of yourselves. It is a gift from God. That salvation is not of works so that no one can boast. Isn't that glorious? See, what is baptism saying? Baptism is saying this new life that I am experiencing, 2 Corinthians 5, 17. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old habits have passed away. All habits are becoming new. There is a conversion, a regeneration, a washing away of the old and a coming of the new. That's for the question because it's in my mind. How can baptism, public baptism, be perceived as a means of self-proclamation or self-promotion? It, it can't. Why? Because its purpose is to picture gloriously for those who are observing what Christ has done for me. So when we baptize someone, here's the question I ask. Do you, as you come into the waters of baptism, profess that you have placed saving faith in the shed blood of Christ alone as the means of your salvation. And based upon that person being baptized, saying, yes, I do. We baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Folks, that's what happened this night. In this rough story of prisoners who were delivered by a crisis, a man and his family come to faith in Christ. Their eternal destiny is changed. And the evidence that change by participating in believer's baptism, which is commanded by Christ, which proclaims and exalts and pictures the cross work of Christ, His blood shed for me. 
And then third, it does this. It publicly acknowledges our inclusion, our participation in God's forever family. Folks, what happened to this jailer that night was this. His eternal address was changed. He's not still the Philippian jailer. He's the Philippian jailer now who is a child of God's. On this night, he became part of God's forever family and testified to that change of address in the waters of baptism. Baptism, by immersion, captures the symbolism of our union with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. And it is the God-ordained symbol by which we publicly make a proclamation about our trust in the cross work of Christ. Most married people wear on their finger a ring. That ring is not their marriage union. Okay? That ring is a symbol of their marriage union. Okay? It's a picture. It makes a statement. And you walk up to people, they, a lot of times I do this, I'll, I'll look and see, you know, I wonder if they're married. You know what I'm doing? I'm like, I'm waiting for them to show their hand, okay? Because when you see that, what do you assume? If they're wearing that ring on that finger, what does it tell me? Okay, they're married. Hey, are you, you married? Then I'll ask, okay, are you married? Kids, whatever. Engage in a conversation. That ring tells me that they are committed or devoted to someone. Okay? Baptism functions in the same way. It says to a watching world, I have hope because I am united to Christ. I have forgiveness because Christ died on the cross and paid the price for my sin. My eternal destiny is secure in Christ because he changed my life. Folks, for this Philippian jailer, I just I can't imagine the next day as he wakes up, the, the glory of what happened that night when his life was changed because he encountered an authentic Christian witness who in the midst of his crisis spoke the word of God to him. Paul and Silas were not content just to say, hey, we stayed. Don't kill yourself, we stayed. Can you imagine Paul and Silas just doing that? Tell him. Tell him. Tell him. Folks, could we go out of here today saying this to God? God, give me courage like Paul and Silas to speak the words that give life. To not think that, well, I I live the Christian life. Words or, or, or life alone is never enough to bring someone to faith in Christ. It will tell them that there's a difference. It may, may, it may create in them a bit of an appetite to know what you know, but it is not enough to bring them to Christ. It requires a verbal proclamation. That verbal proclamation always requires courage and a willingness to deal with whatever consequences come from that proclamation. And that's why we're often silent. Okay, Paul and Silas could not be quiet. May God bring us such a spirit in our hearts that we just can no longer be quiet about Christ. We have to tell people the reason for the hope that's in us. And if you're here this morning and you've trusted Christ and you've never been baptized, can I say this to you? God wants you. God commands you. God directs you to proclaim your faith in Christ in the waters of public baptism. That's what he wants from you. A means by which you can say to the world, I have hope, and Jesus Christ is why. And I have a new relationship with him, which means my eternal destiny is secure. We profess the gospel in the waters of baptism. 
you're here this morning and you've never trusted Christ, you may say, Pastor Tim, I've never even heard all this stuff about the cross of Christ before. I want to tell you, if, if, if you know this, if you know like the Philippian jailer that you have a need and you cry out, God will show you a way through a brother or sister in Christ, a friend. He will show you a way to have peace with God, a peace that passes all understanding. He will show you that on the cross, the blood of His Son, Jesus Christ, was shed for you. 1 Corinthians 15.3, for this reason, is very precious to me. Christ died for our sins. And folks, we have one thing in common in this room this morning. That is, all of us fall short of the glory of God. All of us are sinners who mess up in our life. We have something else in common. There is for everyone who believes a Savior who is Christ. I'm going to guess that the least likely person for salvation in Philippi was the hardened-off warden at the local prison. The last person that ever came to the mind of Peter and Paul, or Paul and Silas, became a believer because God shook his world. Maybe you're here this morning and you never trusted him. He perhaps is shaking your world. Perhaps you're going through a crisis, a divine set of circumstances that God has organized to bring you to the end of yourself so that you would see your need for Christ. And today I would encourage you to come to faith in him and trust in him and be forgiven. And if you never followed him in the waters of baptism in simple obedience, here's what I'm going to encourage you to do. There's a sheet on the table in the back. Uh, it tells you about a baptism service that's going to come up at the end of the month of August. And if you have trusted Christ, you say, Pastor Tim, I have trusted Christ, but I have not publicly obeyed him in the waters of baptism, and I'm ready to do that. I know I've been forgiven, but I have not obeyed him in this area, and I need to. I'm going to encourage you after the service, go back and sign up on that sheet, or come up at the end of the service, say, Pastor Tim, I need to get baptized. I've trusted Christ, I know my heart has changed, and I need to be baptized to publicly profess what Christ, to exalt Christ, to show Christ to the world around me. I encourage you just to yield to him and say, okay, Lord, no matter what your age is, say, Lord, I want to come and I'm going to follow you in the waters of baptism. Would you bow your heads with me this morning?